Bible, now is a good time to turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be reading from 18 through 25 in Genesis chapter 2. And as if you don't have your scripture with you, it will be projected around us in the screens. God's word says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every um, living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. Let's continue worshiping. effects of father absence in children's lives. And I want to up front first say that I do not wish in any way to disparage single mothers. I respect them. I love them. I thank God for the tremendous work that they do. And for those fathers who aren't able to be with their children, I know from hearing you talk the pain and the hurt that you feel. But as we look at God's Word today, I want to remind us the importance of marriage and the family. Children need both parents. This article goes on and talks about the two main threats to fathers' presence with their children is divorce and then non-marital childbearing. He goes on and he talks about the impact that it has on children who grow up without dads. Research has found that nothing short of disastrous in a number of different situations. Too often, children's self-concept, emotional security, is wiped away in their self-loathing. Behavioral problems skyrocket. Social adjustments Problems with friendships. Many develop a swaggering, intimidating persona in an attempt to disguise their underlying fears and resentments and anxieties and happiness. 71% of high school dropouts are fatherless. 85% of the youth in prison have an absent father. As a matter of fact, The rate is 32 times the average rate for incarceration. Homelessness. 90% of runaway children have an absent father. Children raised without a father or, or at high risk, suffering physical, emotional, and sexual abuse being five times more likely to have experienced physical abuse, emotional maltreatment, with a hundred 
times higher risk of fatal abuse. A recent study reported that preschoolers not living with their biological parents are 40 times, 40 times more likely to be sexually abused. And we could go on and on with the various things, but father absence is such a crucial social issue. And in Fatherless America, David Blankington calls the crisis of fatherless children the most destructive trend of our generation. According to Slate magazine, in 2014, for millennials here in the United States, that's that age 18 to 30-ish, out of wedlock childbirth is the norm. In a study tracking the first wave of millennials to become parents, a team from John Hopkins University found that 64% of mothers gave birth at least once out of wedlock. And almost half had all the children outside of marriage. Nationally, the out-of-wedlock birth rate for all ages is 40, over 40%. And one counselor working with troubled youth was asked, how many of these teens seem to come from happy homes? The counselor's response was, I've never seen a happy home. I've never seen a happy home. Well, how do you and how do I, how do we as a church respond in light of such desperate need in our land? We must know and commit to God's purposes for marriage and for the family. Again, in light of all that we see happening across our land, we must make a decision to understand God's intention in creating marriage and the family and commit to fulfilling it as much as he enables us to. The structure of the Ten Commandments and the four of them show the importance of the family. Jesus told us that the, all the law could be summed up in two. To love God with all your heart and soul and mind and to love your neighbor likewise. And the Ten Commandments, if you remember the first four, talk about how we're to love God. The last five tell us how we should love our neighbor. And right there in the center, number five, honor your mother and father. How do we learn to relate to God and to the neighbor? Where do we learn how to love God and neighbor? In the home. It's in the home where we teach children to love God and to love the neighbor. We see today the importance of marriage in God's eyes. If you look at Genesis 2, 18-25, marriage and family is the most essential social structure that we have. It does not lessen the value of those who are single. It shows the importance, though, of marriage as a basis for society and for culture. Remember, Moses wrote Genesis under the inspiration of God 
for the nation of Israel as they were entering into the promised land. God wanted to establish the family, marriage in the family is of key importance for the nation. We see God's design again in Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Read with me, please. Well, the Lord God said, It is not good for men should be alone. I will make him a helper, fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call him. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the, sea, of the heaven, and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. The rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This, at last, is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. This passage is the basis for much of what the Bible says about marriage later on. It explains God's reason for giving honor to marriage. It enables us, it gives us principles to build marriages that honor God and bring us joy. But God designed marriage among many things, but a key thing is because of man's need for companionship. We see the need of the man in verse 18. God said, it is not good for man <clears throat> to be alone. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, after reading Genesis 1 and 2, the words of chapter 2, verse 18, kind of hit us abruptly. If you remember, God would survey each day all that he had created, and he said, it is good. It is good. It is good. Six times he said it is good. This is the first time that something was creation. He did not say it is good. He said it is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. Commentators stress the importance that not good is very strong language. And it indicates not only uh, an absence of something good, but also a substantial deficiency. Think about it. Here's Adam in the Garden of Eve. Of Eden. <laughs> he's in, he's a first, he's a perfect man, sinless. He's in a perfect place, beautiful. What more could someone want? Sometimes super spiritual, quote, 
unquote, people say that if you're lonely, there must be something wrong with you. But I think God makes it very clear that we need fellowship with Him and with each other. This passage is not saying that every person needs to be married. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, God makes it very clear through Paul that not all should be married. As a matter of fact, we spent a lot of years, each of us, being single. I was 30 years old before I got married. If you're single, you need companionship, both with male and female. I still think back to those 30 years before I was married in high school and college and later. There were some very special people that God brought into my life. There was Linda and Kay, then girlfriends of my two of my best friends, who later became their wives. There was Catherine. We called her Poochie for some reason. I was president of student body at the university, and she was secretary. And we were just good, dear friends. We interacted together. Special, special friend. I had two sisters, Eileen and Kathy, that were very, very close to me. You see, we all need companionship, whether we're married or not. This passage isn't saying that marriage will meet all your needs for companionship. Married people need friends of the same sex. Yesterday, the men had a breakfast, kind of reviewing what we went through at the retreat, and it was stressed over and over again. We need each other. We need each other. This passage does communicate, though, one of the main reasons that God designed marriage was to meet that human need for companionship. Sure, there are other things that come along with it. But God says in verse 18, He says, I will make him a helper, fit for him. Sometimes I think we read the word helper and we think it's a demeaning term. It is by no means a demeaning term. As a matter of fact, it's used over and over and over in the Old Testament, especially of God. Exodus 18, 4, Moses said, My God, my Father's God, was my helper. He saved me from Pharaoh. Jesus Christ, as he was getting ready to ascend, told the believers that he was sending the helper of the Greek equivalent to describe the Holy Spirit. What God says in verse 18, I will make him a helper fit for him. And this literally means like opposite him, or according to his opposite. And as his matching opposite, she will supply all that he was lacking. And so God declared that help was on the way for Adam, from one who would be both like him and unlike him. In the context here, the word indicates that the woman, Eve, will supply all that he lacked. And by implication, that he would provide all that she lacked. The function of the helper is complementary to man and to wife. Initially, 
it seems like, as you look at God's Word, it seems that Adam may not even recognize his need. He may have been oblivious to his need for a mate. There's no indication that Adam was dissatisfied with the circumstances. So God, in order to prepare this needy bachelor, God initiated an awareness program. He helped Adam to feel a need for a wife. Verse 19, The Lord brought the animals to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever name, whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. If you remember previously, God had given names to his creation, but now Adam had taken that on. And, it, and we may think it was some kind of a whimsical type thing, but a classic book by uh, Kyle and uh, Delich points out that names, these names that Adam gave, they weren't just whimsically given. He had to study not just their outward appearance, but their nature inside. He understood what the animal was and, and, uh, and what it was all about. When Adam fulfilled his job of naming the animals, he saw that there was no animal that would correspond to him. He realized that every other animal had a companion, but for Adam, there's no suitable helper. He was alone. He was alone. And God said, that's not good. Everything else was good. All the other animals had counterparts. Only Adam was alone with no one to relate to. As he worked in solitude, he became aware that he was alone. And, of course, Adam could not reproduce by himself. Today, though we look, see the importance of having male and female in society. What would life be without women? Ladies, you have so much to life, to family, and to the workplace. I'll never forget when I first moved here as a single guy and I had an apartment over here on Cheney. And I, it was a newly renovated apartment, nice hardwood floors, and... Um, Nice place. And then a single lady from ICI came in and she said, Ralph, you keep your place clean I, for a man. It looks real good. It's clean. It really is bare. It looks like it needs a woman's touch. She was right. There were no pictures on the wall. There were no rugs here and there. We see the importance of ladies in our life. And we see God here supply that companion in verses 21 through 23. It says, So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. See, Eve was created out of Adam the basis for her equality. Verse 22. Then the Lord made 
a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. We see it's as if it were God bringing Eve to Adam, almost like a father walking his daughter on wedding day. Adam's response when he saw her, has to see. This one is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman. I love how the ESV and the Revised Standards say, this at last, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You see there, that relief, that excitement, that surprise, He was beside himself. What's the thing about Adam and Eve in our culture today of dating, I came across five pickup lines probably used by Adam. Number five, you know you're the only one for me. Four, trust me, this was meant to be. I like three. Look around, baby. All the other guys around here are animals. That's good. Number two. I already feel, Eve, like you're a part of me. Number one. Honey, you were made for me. Woman was made to complete man. She was man's exact counterpart. Exactly what he needed to be complete. She was everything that he was. Made in God's image. She had body, soul, and spirit. She had mind, will, and emotions. Just like Adam. She was Adam's equal in every way. She was the crown of creation, so to speak. And not an afterthought. Without woman, man cannot be man. Woman completes man, whether married or not. Men are dependent on women in ways other than marriage. This is obvious when we think about the role of mothers. That's definitely not her role as a helper. Man needs woman to be himself. Think about life in a neighborhood or in a work setting. Think about what it'd be like without having the presence of women. I'm thankful for that different touch that women have on us in the office. Santi and Jeanette, they are creative, they're discerning, they have great administrative skills that I don't have. And add to it, they bring laughter. Fridays, I was on a day off, I was shopping, buying groceries. And I got this text from Santia, and it was a picture of my Bible that I had lost about a month ago. I looked everywhere and I could not find it. And it's got a picture and it's got my name written in there. And, and she says, the question of the day is, 
Should the word of the Lord be held for ransom? You must understand that the policy at Good News Bible Church is if someone finds the keys of someone else, it's flan time. It's time for flan. Well, so she was taking this established precedent and trying to establish a new one. And so Jeanette's response, because Jeanette sent it to Carrie and to, um, to Jeanette, Jeanette said, better ask Chris, that looks like her handwriting. Let me see here now. Um, then I said, it's only keys. Where is my Bible? Sanjay says, if you want to know, it will cost you. I had a smiley face. I said, you would not withhold the word of God from my brother. Her quick response was, yep. I gave her a smiley face. And then Jeanette says, I think, Ralph, she has got cinnamon scones on her mind. And I said, I was afraid of that. And then Santia said, biscuits are another good source of payment. And I said, I'll see what ingredients we have in our pantry. Poor Jerry may miss a meal. <laughs> Poor guy. Her response was, Jared didn't lose his Bible. <laughs> and I said, you drive a hard bargain. And Santia says, it was providential that I would be the one to find it. Can't wait to tell you where it was. And if I die... Before I see you, Carrie knows where it is. Thank you, Santia. We need that loving interaction between each other. There's something about that touch with women that adds to the life of a man. What's been said that after creating man that God said and do better and then he created the woman and this brings a new meaning to the expression our better half I like what Matthew Henry said in his commentary the woman was made of a rib out of a rib in the side of Adam not out of his head to rule over him nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm, to be protected, and near his heart, to be loved. I think that says it well. Well, marriage is ordained in verses 24 and 25. We see that God takes the step and marries Adam and Eve. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, neither before Moses or after Moses in Israel was there ever a custom for a man to leave his mother and father when he took a wife. As a matter of fact, it just was not done. The custom was when a man took a wife, he brought her to his parents' home. He lived there. So Moses' declaration that a man shall leave his mother and father must be understood relatively. It's a prescription for loyalty and for intimacy 
that a man must give to his wife. He must leave his family. The union with his wife is so profound that he leaves his family even as he remained with them. You see, his first obligation was to his wife. His loyalties were to his wife. The word leave means to depart from. Obviously, it doesn't mean that when we marry that we abandon our parents. But it does mean that there must be a change in how we relate to our parents. It means that we give up our childlike dependency on them. We should seek in every way to respect our parents, but we don't allow them to control us. Well, not only should man leave his mother and father, he's to cleave to her, or to hold fast to his wife, as the ESV says. And that implies faithfulness and permanence and loyalty. Husbands, we're to hold fast, even as Israel was repeatedly urged to stick to the Lord in a covenantal relationship. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20 says, Fear the Lord, you shall serve Him, you shall hold fast to Him. Deuteronomy 13, verse 4, Walk with the Lord your God, fear Him, obey Him, serve Him, Hold fast to Him. We as husbands are to hold fast. As we're to hold fast to God, we hold fast to our wives. The use of these terms, leave and cleave, indicate that marriage is to be viewed as a covenant. And we see this in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. Malachi says, You cry out, Why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. But you've been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your covenant, a marriage covenant. Proverbs 2 says, Wisdom will save you from the immoral woman and from her seductive words. She abandoned her husband and ignores the covenant she made before God. So we see marriage is a covenant. Leaving and cleaving involves a public declaration in the sight of God. Marriage isn't a private matter in one sense. It involves a declaration of intention. As a matter of fact, most wedding ceremonies have a declaration of intention right up front. It means a reorganization of relationships. Christian marriages call for that public covenant before God, before the church, before the family, and before the state. It's important that today that we understand what is being taught about man and woman and marriage here. Marriage was given that and rooted in the very act of creation. Think about it. Powerful. We should not only understand it, we need to keep it before us, always. Because our culture 
no longer respects marriage. We know that Jesus Christ used this same passage as he talked about marriage in the New Testament in Luke. Paul also used that passage. In verse 24, we read that a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast, or does that word cleave, to his wife, and then they shall become one flesh. One flesh. The New Living Translation says the two are united into one. I think this is the culmination or the climax of, of this, uh, this account. That these two people become one flesh, one complete unity. One flesh, of course, refers to their life together, physically, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally. Oneness allows for individuality, of course. We don't cease to be whom we are when we get married. And we can't demand someone to, to change in order to become one. We only become one when we commit ourselves to something greater, bigger than we ourselves are. And to achieve oneness, we must commit to marriage and all that God wants in it. We commit ourselves to His values, even when it goes against our wills. And if we're honest, we struggle with that at times. We commit ourselves to His purposes. That means we have to give up our ways sometimes. In marriage, and I say this over and over in premarital and marital counseling, marriage is not a 50-50 commitment. It's a hundred-hundred. Again, this oneness encompasses sexual oneness, intellectual oneness, emotional oneness, volitional oneness. Husband and wives share everything they have, not just their material possessions, but they share their thinking and their feelings, their joy and their suffering, their hopes and their fears, their successes and their failures. To become one flesh means that two people become completely one in body, soul, and spirit, and yet remain two different people. I often tell couples in counseling, or occasionally if I use this passage for weddings, I tell them that the qualities of each of them will not be lost in marriage, but they'll be merged. I tell them, your weaknesses will not evaporate, but will be married with the strengths of their spouse. When I married my beautiful bride, Chris, some 32 years ago, I didn't stop being me. Chris didn't stop being Chris. But together, we became something entirely different. She's strong where I'm not. And her strengths became a part of me. I see life differently than she does. Because of that, she looks at life differently. We're richer. We're fuller. Because we're a new whole. We are one. We are one. When verse 25 says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The nakedness here does not, of course, refer only 
to their being without clothes physically. It refers to their physical and psychological oneness and transparency. The stress is that they were completely at ease with each other. There's no fear of, of exploitation. There's no fear of evil. Nakedness was a sign of their purity and integrity. The divine plan for marriage is one man and one woman becoming one flesh and living together in integrity. And for the sake of his wife, the man leaves that strong bond with his mom and dad and he unites with her. Again, God designed marriage to meet the human need for companionship. A key part, I think. If you think of companionship, companionship requires that the marriage be a key relationship. Again, we don't abandon our parents when we're married, but relationships are different. Number two, companionship requires that marriage be permanent relationship. I can't tell you how many times over and over as I've counseled over the last 20-something years here how when there's a conflict with a couple inevitably sometimes there's that word divorce that comes up. And maybe they don't mean it. But mentioning getting a divorce does nothing to resolve the conflict. What it does is it creates a lack of trust, a sense of instability, uncertainty. Marriage is permanent. The third thing, companionship requires that marriage be an exclusive relationship. Close relationships with opposite sex cannot continue as they were after marriage. They're not saying you can't have friendships with opposite sex, but you know and I know that things change. Things change. For those men who love to be in three and four, and dare I say sometimes five baseball leagues, that has to stop. These relationships with these buddies, it's got to change. Because you see, the wife is a priority. In this passage, we've seen the account of the creation of the first woman and the institution of marriage. He has so much to say about the foundation for Israel's culture, but he has so much to say about us and our culture today. God intended marriage to be between one man and one woman united in marriage to produce godly offspring. I want to take this time to give a, a, a warning or a comment as we deal with this whole issue of same-sex marriage. Sometimes our tendency is to get angry. Sure, there are those few that are extremists that push this 
I want you to remember there are a lot of men and women who struggle with homosexual struggles. And they need desperately to hear from you and from me that you love them. They need desperately to see in us a loving face. I promise you, there are so many around us hurting. I think God calls us to reach out and to love. And we don't accept homosexuality as a lifestyle, but we love them. We love them. Hopefully love them to Christ. Society, in society, Israel's, the U.S., in society flourishes as it is obedient to God and receives His blessings. It's very clear from this passage that God instituted marriage immediately after creation because it was so foundational to society. God defined marriage and sex and love. Now culture has become sexual users and abusers and consumers. And we as a culture have tried to redefine what marriage is and what sex is and what love is. God, of course, is no longer the center of our culture, of our society, of our views of life, of sex, of marriage. Love without God has been reduced to a feeling. And when love becomes a feeling, anything goes. Extramarital sex, multiple partners is the outcome of that along with same-sex marriage. And why not? If our feelings are self-determining, if our feelings are sovereign, how much more beautiful is life when God is at the center of our lives and when His Word, His instructions the rule and guide for us on the sixth day God's not good became very good we need to remember that when God's word guides our life and our love when God is the center it is very good I'm not saying there's not hardship but it's very good God designed marriage he knows best how it operates. His Word gives us principles that we need for satisfying marriages. And since God designed marriage, it takes three to make a good marriage. God, and man, and woman. And for a Christian to go and marry a non-believer is not only to disobey God, it's to enter into marriage lacking something essential. Marriage has been described by many as a triangle with God at the top, and the closer each partner moves toward God, the closer they get to each other. The further apart they move from God, 
They fall apart. They get from each other. As soon as Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they experienced that alienation, yes, from God, but from each other. You remember Adam started blaming Eve for the problems. As I look at marriage over the years, broken marriages almost always involve at least one partner moving away from God. Not always, but often. The same is true for those of us who are single in relationships. The closer we are to God, the closer we are to our friends, to our family, to our workers. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven.